I remember this particular day <laughs> both clearly and kind of vaguely. It always seems to be that way on big days like this particular day. Things that you've planned for that are a big day sort of seem to go in both warp speed and slow motion. It always seems that way for days like this that carry weight and that are a big day, like this particular day was. At the time, we'd been planning for months, but I realized, of course, many years later, it's the kind of thing that I was actually being prepared for my whole life. Well, at this particular moment, it was one of those moments on this day when time sort of seems to slow down and I became keenly aware, keenly aware of the significance of what was going on in that moment. I remember it pretty distinctly because it was Saturday evening in late December 1997. And I was standing up front on stage and my beautiful bride came forward to take my hand in marriage. And I remember very clearly, very distinctly in that sort of slow motion movement moment thinking, <laughs> how in the world did I swing this? It had been sort of a blur up to that point, but I remember right then thinking, how, how in the world did I swing this? The woman I was about to marry, and the truth of this, I know 20-fold compared to what I knew then. This woman I was about to marry was way out of my league. Smart as a whip, Got much better grades than I did. Was a, was a magna cum laude at University of Chicago in graduate school. Hailed as one of the finest graduate schools on the planet. Sort of quick on the draw, super funny, and uh, at the same time, very much a heart of compassion and care for what is good and right and eternal and lasting. I am, of course, talking about my wife, yes. <laughs> Just in case there's any sort of doubts about that. <clears throat> She was, in that moment, a beauty to behold for me. And in that moment, I knew very clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind, I knew wholeheartedly that I was ready to spend my life with this woman. And I knew at the same time that she had a rock-solid confidence in marrying me. There were no feelings for me of cold feet. There was no hesitation. There was not really any doubt about whether or not what I was doing was the right thing. No questioning. We knew we were doing the right thing in that moment because we knew we were ready. We knew we were prepared for that moment. I knew that my bride's first love was Jesus Christ that her first flame was an on-fire relationship with God, and that in second place, <laughs> there I was, knowing that she was devoted to me alone, and that we had kept ourselves for one another. We knew that we were doing it the right way. So when she came down the aisle in the white dress with her hair all up fancy and some sort of white flowery stuff in her hair... Um, holding pink and white lilies in her hand as she came down, um, I knew from the outward beauty and the preparation of that moment that that reflected an inward reality that her heart was for me. 
Clearly, I had married up. Now, friends, if you are a believer in Christ and you know what it's like to be lost in sin and also found by grace, then you likewise know that feeling of marrying out of your league. You know what it's like to marry up. Because the amazing truth that we learn today in Revelation 19, this is a truth I want you to just simmer with uh, as we talk today and throughout this week. The truth of Revelation 19 and the truth of that moment for me was the feeling behind this passage. And the truth is that the church has married up. The church has married up. And Revelation 19 is for us a picture of what that truth looks like. Follow along and let's see how this develops from the text. Look at chapter 19, verse 1 here. It says, After I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Now, just to recap a smidge, uh, this section, 19.1 and following, is a response to the invitation to rejoice over what we talked about the last few weeks, which is the demise of what's called the great prostitute Babylon. The great prostitute and the city of Babylon are synonymous there in the previous number of chapters. If you'll remember last week, Tommy asked if we were lamenting or if we were rejoicing over the fall of the great prostitute, over the fall of Babylon. And so this is, in chapter 19, this is a response to 1820, if you want to turn back there with me. Chapter 18, uh, verse 20, where we see here the invitation to rejoice. Before this, the world's structures and those who followed along with the great prostitute were lamenting the fall of Babylon. And then the change happens in verse 20 here in 1820, where the, the introduction to our Uh, section begins here the invitation in 20 says rejoice over her O heaven and you saints and apostles and prophets for god has given judgment for you against her god has given he's given judgment for you against her so this is what it means to marry up for the church it means that judgment by God, is on your behalf. He's judged for you and against her. It means that Almighty God looked at the evidence and based on Him living a perfect and sinless and righteous life, based on Him living that life through the person of Jesus who He sent for us, He judged in our favor. That's why it says in verse 20, God has given judgment for you against her. That's where we get the title for the first section in your study notes there, which is number one. We'll put it on the screen here. It says, Hallelujah, we are saved. We are saved through judgment. We are saved through or even from judgment. I think it's through. Some people think it's from. You can make a whole lot of different theological points from whether you want to say through or from. Um, I think it's something it's from let's see how this plays out here in the first section in our passage in uh, chapter 19 verse 1 
Now that first phrase there says, after this, this is the same phrase we've seen a number of times in Revelation. This is the eighth and actually the last time that we see it. And that phrase, after this, uh, can also literally be uh, translated, after these things, it's, it's a marker of a new vision for John. It's a marker of a new vision. It's not necessarily a statement of chronology and timing. Uh, and this is a vision that actually comes audibly and not just visually. So it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And this is a way, this great multitude phrase is a way of talking about the tribe and the tongues and the nations, which is a Bible way of talking about all of the gathered people of God who will be in heaven. We've seen this before in Revelation. If you want to turn to uh, chapter 7, verse 9. This, this great multitude thing is something we've seen a number of times. Here's one example in Revelation 7, verse 9. Read along. It says, after this, there's that phrase again, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And this is similar to our passage here as well. There's a lot of parallel here. It says, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Those palm branches are symbolic of the welcoming of the Messiah. And then it says, verse 10, if you want to follow along there, it says, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. So go back to 19, verse 1, and we see this same uh, great multitude that is the redeemed people of God crying out, and then there's this, this famous word, hallelujah, this word only happens here in the New Testament in these four places in our passage. All four occurrences of hallelujah in the New Testament are here in Revelation 19, 1, 3, 4, and 6 that we're reading from today. So this is sort of a set of, of final praises. There's been sort of this long pause throughout the whole New Testament after the coming of Christ. And then here, John picks up this word from this vision that he sees, and he hears them singing or crying out, Hallelujah. And that's sort of a marker that finally, finally, the Messiah is going to fully uh, come again, and the judgment of God is going to happen. By the way, the judgment of God happens in Revelation, uh, depending on how you're counting, at least four or five different times. I'll point out those places uh, later on. So here's another expression of praise. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's the end of verse 1 there. This is sort of a pure expression of praise. And, and, and the purity of that kind of expression of praise is worth noting. Remember a few weeks ago, we asked about why you, why we worship God. I started out by, by asking the question, why do we worship God? And we, we talked about how obviously we're thankful for uh, things that He does for us and we're thankful for the blessings we have. We're thankful that He's a God of mercy and love. But at the same time, one of the messages of this book is that we are also called to be people thankful that He does what He's been doing the last number of chapters and what we're singing hallelujah about in this passage today. So worshiping God is not just for the good things we like or because He's gracious and He's kind, but also because He's just and He's true to His character and nature. If He were not, He would not be God. Read this next little uh, part of the verse here. This is the beginning of verse 2. 
This is the reason why hallelujah and salvation and glory and power belong to God. And the reason why the great multitude is singing out praises or, or, or crying out praises. Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. And here's the example of it. He has judged the great prostitute. And here's what she did. She corrupted the earth with her immorality. And then it says, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That word avenge there is not revenge, but it's like a vindication. It's like a vindication uh, kind of concept. Has avenged on her, meaning the, uh, the great prostitute, the blood of his servants. That word servants there is the same as the New Testament word for slave. So slave and servant is the same uh, concept there. Now it says this, verse 3, once again, once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. There are some who in our world today cry to talk about how, how hell is not necessarily an eternal place, uh, how hell may not be a concept that goes past time here on earth. Um, I am not one of those for verses like this. And there are a number of them. In fact, there's an Old uh, Testament tradition that goes way back that says that when Jesus returns to bring final judgment, the smoke from her will go up forever and ever, meaning the smoke from consuming Babylon and sin from the earth. And so that's why it says here the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's, a, that's sort of repeating a concept, if you want to look this up later, from Psalm 104, 35. Uh, there are a number of other places where this is the case, but Psalm 104, 35 is one that had a, a heavy Jewish tradition around it. Of, of God's final judgment being one that would consume the earth. It would consume the earth. Psalm 104 says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then it says, Praise the Lord. This is Psalm 104.35. It says, Praise the Lord at the end, which is the same exact word here in this passage for hallelujah. Hallelujah is a word that means praise Yahweh. Or praise the Lord. So, because John hears that, and he sees and hears them singing this word, crying out this word, hallelujah, and one of the things they're talking about is that her smoke goes up forever and ever. He sees that picture and he thinks, aha, yes. It's just like all those, those traditions and passages I know from the Old Testament. And so John the Apostle, being very much uh, a Jew, notes that, and, 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 and makes that point here in Revelation. Let's keep moving on. Verse 4 says this, The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. We saw these twenty-four elders and these four creatures back in uh, previous parts of Revelation. They worshipped God who was seated on the throne. This is that picture from chapter 4 again. Saying, Amen, Hallelujah. There's the third time Hallelujah shows up. And it says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. This voice that's coming from the throne is uh, a couple possibilities. It's, it's either uh, an angel or it's Christ. Uh, we don't really know definitively. Folks have made arguments for either way. Um, it doesn't probably matter a whole lot. Now, these first few verses of praise, when we hear hallelujah three times, these verses of praise are a result of God 
judging sin. Let me ask you, friends. (laughs) Does it seem almost, does it maybe even feel like a weird concept to worship God because He has judged sin? When you, when, you, when you come to worship here, is your heart proclaiming praises to God because He's going to do away with sin? Well, in, in, our, in our finer moments, probably yes. You know, when you think about it, uh, we come to worship, and part of what we're expressing, though we may not always name it as such, like Revelation 19, part of what we're expressing is the truth that God will do away with all sin and with all hurt and with all pain. And so we come to this service of worship. We come as the great multitude of sorts here until that day. We come here with all these burdens on our hearts and in our minds and in our families and our relationships in our parenting and our workplace. And we come with these sort of heart-sick emotions and feelings. So we may not always name it, but there is, a, there is a sense in which we even now come to worship praising God because that day will end when hurt and pain and crying will be the case for us. So that's a hint at what comes later on in Revelation or what's talked about again. I wonder, though, if that's not what we think about if that's not why we come to worship, I wonder what is wrong with us if our hearts do not yet sing a refrain of praise for God's judgment against sin. What is wrong with us if our hearts do not yet sing a refrain of praise because of God's judgment against sin? Let me say it this way. If we are not identifying with this great multitude, if we are not moved by the truth that God deserves everlasting worship for His full and His final judgment against sin, then what does that say about our hearts, about the state of our hearts' desires? I wonder if it might be a clear indication that we have yet to learn to worship God for who He is as opposed to our expectations of Him sometimes. I think we often come to worship imposing on a perfect holy God perceptions of Him that we bring to the table. Maybe it's a clear indication that we have yet to learn to worship God for Him taking care of our biggest problem of sin. And not giving Him praise and glory for the things that we easily call valuable. That we, that we value because we're still in love with the world around us. And our expectations for our lives based on those values in the world to which we've given our hearts based on the ways in which We've idolized lies from the evil one. Part of how we know we married up, part of how we know we married up is that God who deserves glory simply because He exists will nonetheless keep us 
and save us through His judgment against sin. That is, that is a precious truth that gives us hope and assurance and confidence to live now, this day, today. Because He will keep us through His judgment against sin. That's a reason to worship. That's a reason to give Him praise. That when He brings the full and final wrath that is deserved, we will be saved from it. That's why these multitudes and these elders and these living creatures bring God praise and glory. In 6-8, through eight, uh, we see more praise. We see another picture of worship. There's one more hallelujah here. And that hallelujah is proclaimed for this reason. And this is the next uh, title here. This is the next section here. We are wedded to God through Christ. This is the reason they praise in this second section. We are wedded to God through Christ. Pick it up in verse 6 here. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It's the same multitude of tongues, tribes, and nations described earlier. Uh, but we're given a little more description of the a sort of force, the force of their voices. John says, It was like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is a, a typical Bible way uh, to say <laughs> really loud. Uh, we've seen this before in Revelation. In uh, 14 verse 2, if you want to turn there with me. In uh, chapter 14, verse 2, when the 144,000 who picture the whole church are singing a new song, 14.2 says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. I I, I point this out to show uh, again, to show yet again that Revelation repeats itself constantly. It's like, Revelation is like looking through a prism where the light hits it different ways. And different colors come out. And different ways of seeing how the light refracts from that prism. And and so Revelation is kind of like that. In fact, this this final and full judgment in Revelation that we're having pictured here in Revelation 19 is the fifth time that we see that in Revelation. If you want to be a note taker here and and, and look that up for yourself, uh, the final... Judgment is pictured in a bunch of different ways, five ways. In Revelation 6.12, in Revelation 6.12, also Revelation 11.15, 11.15 and following, uh, 14.14 and following, 14.14 and following, which is a picture of what we'll talk about next week, 16.17 and following, 16.17, and here in 19.1, and following, you can look it up and uh, notice how many different ways, different images that Revelation uses to tell us this message of the end. Now, when it repeats like that over and over, <laughs> it's trying to say, "This is super important." Like, if you don't get this message, you will not spend eternity with God. That's what Revelation is saying. So, back to 19:6, we hear this great multitude crying again like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And then it says they are crying out, this is the fourth time, Hallelujah, or, or praise the Lord, or praise Yahweh, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. In other words, praise the Lord because He's King. <clears throat> and then it says, let us rejoice and exult. E-X-U-L-T. Uh, the word exult is different than the word exalt. 
E-X-A-L-T, uh, to exalt, E-X-A-L-T, is to sort of hold in high regard, to sort of name something as being held in high regard. To exalt is the emotional uh, feelings of rejoicing in something. So to say you exult in God means to express that emotion of praise because He's King. That's what exult sort of means here. So this word exult is a cool word that describes the sort of emotions and feelings that well within because God is King. So it says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. This is verse 7. And give Him the glory. And here's the reason why. We rejoice and exult and we sing hallelujah. This is why the great multitude does this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Revelation is saying, uh, finally that day for which you've been preparing, finally that day for which God has prepared you has come. I'm sure that those of you who enjoyed the amazing and have enjoyed the the blessing of years of faithful marriage, it's the kind where you exult in your husband or your wife. Those who know joys of a blessed marriage over many years, uh, remember the preparation for that. The sort of of, uh, courting that happens for us for almost three years before that, the preparation, the many hours of talking about it, being ready for it, the sort of warm fuzzies as it, as it got close. <clears throat> and then when that day happens, when that day happens and you stand and you say, I do, it's like finally. Finally. That's the sort of emotion expressed here. When it says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It says, His bride, meaning Christ's bride, the Lamb's bride, has made herself ready. Now, lest you think that this means something we do only on our own power, only on our own strength and power, as if we could by ourselves prepare for this marriage. Keep reading. Verse 8, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself. It was granted her. In other words, this this bride was given this dress. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There is, in my, my best estimation, there's this balance here of human responsibility as well as divine sovereignty. Uh, our responsibility as humans to be clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints as well as God's preparation for us. We're given a dress to wear that is bright and pure linen because it is made so by the righteous deeds of those who follow the Lamb. In other words, because saints are made saintly by Christ, their lives here and now, the way saints live for Christ here and now, goes into preparation for this wedding. Another way to say it is that the kind of lives we live now for Christ can impact the way the bride appears to Christ in this wedding. There is, there is this, uh, there's a sacredness. There's sort of the spiritual weight to the reality of our lives here and now that the evil one wants to convince you is not there. 
And so, what, what Revelation 19 is saying is that your righteousness, your, your godly behavior, your way of living now is preparation for His return then. You can prepare for this wedding. You must be prepared for this wedding. Is what Revelation 19 is saying. So, so don't let the evil one steal away from you the reality that this life we live is a sacred trust. There is spiritual weight to it. We are not just this amalgam. We're not just this mixture of, of stuff and DNA and material, though that is, of course, the flesh through which we live. And it is also a good gift created by God. But don't be snookered into the lie that life is this sort of flippant and, and, and passing mixture of material and DNA with no meaning. Which reminds me of a great quote that uh, I was thinking about by C.S. Lewis. And we've, we've put this in your study notes. It sort of verbalizes this, this truth. He says, There are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. Seriously as men and women created in the image of God. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. Live now as if it actually matters. So don't be flippant about the importance of your life here and now. Which is to say that we we must... We must become increasingly aware of the truth that living now is preparation for this day that Revelation 19 talks about. Keep reading verse 9. It says the angel. This is probably the angel we met at the beginning of chapter 19, which is one of those seven who poured out the seven bold judgments. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Finally, in verse 10, John has taken this whole scene. He's taken with this whole scene. He sort of mistakes this angel talking to him for Christ. He says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This this metaphor of marriage used here in Revelation 19 is, is a is a picture of our relationship with God. And it's not new with Revelation. It's, a, it's an old tradition uh, that goes way back. And we don't have time to trace it all the way back. Um, but the New Testament, with the words of Jesus, sort of picks up on this tradition. And I'll read for you the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is a great passage. This is Jesus speaking about the end of time. He tells this parable of the ten virgins... Matthew 25, verses 1 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 
Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Friends, don't get caught. Don't get caught without enough oil. Are you prepared? Are you ready for His coming? The good news is that preparation for His coming, the good news is ironically that preparation for His coming cannot be had by being good enough. That may sound a little strange, but it's the truth of the Gospel in Scripture that we are not good enough to prepare for this particular kind of wedding. Which is why it's true that we, as the church, have married up. We've married infinitely higher. And that truth is something that gives us hope, gives us life, gives us purpose for why we want to live in righteousness that reflects the goodness of God as the one to whom we will be forever wedded. And it's reason for us, it's reason for us to praise. Why we praise God is because we married up. And it's a truth that informs and animates our lives. Let's pray.